Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on ESN. This episode is brought to you by PDF Pen 8 from Smile, and you can learn more at smilesoftware.com systematic. My guest this week is Jay Dixit. He's a writer, editor, and storytelling teacher. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Rolling Stone, Slate, Wired, and Psychology Today. How's it going, Jay? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Uh, that was an amazing rhyme at the end of that. Psychology <laughs> Today. How's it going, Jay? Um, perfect cadence and everything. Um, so it's weird interviewing you because I've, I've read your work for a while now and have always appreciated your interview style. And the, the one that's always stood out to me was you're the guy who did the last interview with George Carlin. And it was an amazing interview. And your, your, you had the organic kind of uh, question style that I tend to follow. So I'm a little nervous that interviewing you is going to feel like, um, like I, I can never live up to the way you would interview me. I don't think so. I feel like we have similar interview styles um, because the way that I think about my interview style not that I really think, oh, I have a unique style or something, but I just think of it as, um, you know what I don't like is, um, and somebody like Charlie Rose is like that. I feel like they just have a list of predefined yeah. questions and they don't listen to the answers. Um, you know, like if you listen to Charlie Rose, he asks a question that's some profound, yes, great questions, some profound question like, how did you get into acting? And somebody says, well, you know, really it's because of some crazy trauma. It was, um, you know, I, uh, I, I had a nervous breakdown when I was in college and I nearly killed myself. And then what he does is he says, okay, next question. What was your <laughs> first movie that you ever did? And it's like, wh- what about the follow-up questions? So to me, what makes a good interview is just listening to what the person actually says. I feel like I start with one question and then the rest is just a conversation. I listen to the answer and I'm like, oh my God, what, so what happened? How did that turn out? And then it just becomes an organic thing where each question is determined by listening to the what the person answers. I used to feel like that was a weakness on my part. And uh, I've, I've learned that it's it makes for way better interviews. So I, I do yeah. appreciate your interview style. Thank you. So you originally, you graduated with a, uh, a degree in psychology. I did. My undergrad degree is in psychology. And at what point did you start writing? I started writing um, soon after that. Um, you know, I knew that I wanted to be a journalist. And so, well, I lived, I lived in uh, California for a couple of years after I graduated and I, and I tried my hand at screenwriting. Um, but then at a certain point, uh, a couple of years out of college, I realized what I really wanted to do was to write on my own as a journalist. And so I moved to New York City and that's when I really started writing on my also the screenwriting was was with a screenwriting partner, which was amazing. It was a collaborative thing, but I really wanted to start exploring my own voice and developing my own skills. If I can ask, what kind of uh, what genre was your screenwriting focused in? Uh, it was an adventure revenge story um, with elements of sci-fi. All right. Yeah. So then your first beat would be like college life. Did you start covering this after college then? I did. The way that that worked is my first beat, that's right, was was college life. That happened because I moved to New York City uh, two years out of college, and I had this big dream that I was going to work at a magazine and work my way up to being an editor. So I moved to New York, and I just blanketed all the magazines with uh, queries. Uh, with job applications. <clears throat> and I was my, my plan was to get a job as a fact checker and work my way up. Uh, but that didn't, it didn't work out that way. Nobody wanted to hire me, but I did get a really positive response from, because I, I sent my, uh, like a cover letter and my clips from college. Um, so the articles that I'd written as an undergrad in, in the college magazine that I worked for. So I got a positive response from Rolling Stone and they said, you know, we don't have a job for you, but if you want to come in, and pitch us freelance story ideas, uh, you're welcome to do that. So I made an appointment with one of the editors there, and I came in with like three pages of ideas. She only liked one of the ideas that I came in with, of all the ideas I had, but that was a story about 
the sexual culture at women's colleges. My girlfriend at the time had gone to Wellesley College, which is mm -hmm. an all-women's college in Massachusetts, and she told me these insane stories about what the what what college life was like there, what the sexual culture was like at a on a campus with no men, no male students. And I thought that was so fascinating. So I pitched that. They liked that idea. That became my first assignment in Rolling Stone. And that was kind of my first big break as a journalist. Nice. And then um, how did you move from this college life reporting or essay, I suppose, but into your next beat, which would be comedy? Well, I, it wasn't very planned. It was always just kind of, I was frantic to try to come up with story ideas. I was like, what am I going to write about next? I don't know. I don't know. Um, and I was always trying to think of ideas and I was just always into comedy. Like I went to see stand up here in New York and I, and I loved it. So, and I also had a friend who was an aspiring stand up, and he told me about, actually, he told me about the culture of stand up in New York city. And he used a phrase I thought was interesting. He called it, you know, I think Mark Twain, some famous person said that uh, comedy um, is, uh, is sorrow with a veneer of time and experience, something like that. Um, like, see, like a comedy is, is sorrow plus time. Um, and time creates this veneer. And, and he used the phrase, comedy, the stand-up circuit in New York is like sorrow without the veneer. It's just like <laughs> people... I thought that's, that was such a brilliant phrase. Um, it's like, and you, it's almost like group therapy. These, um, these, because the way it's supposed to work is that uh, you want to be a stand-up. You go and you start doing these open mic nights. You hone your craft. You get better and better. Uh, eventually, you graduate on to doing paid gigs. Um, but it turns out there's a subculture of comedians in New York who kind of just get stuck in that phase, where they get up on stage. At these open mic nights, you have, first of all, you have to pay to attend these mics, open mic nights because, you know, the bars have them on the condition that everybody there buys a drink. So to even get on stage, you have to, you know, buy like a $10 drink ticket or something <laughs> so, so that you can perform for other stand-ups in the audience who are not even really listening. They're just there, like, working on their own acts. Um, but there's, there is kind of this camaraderie, this community where people get up and they talk about their problems, like, oh, like... You know, I have such a strained relationship with my father or my girlfriend broke up with me or I'm, a, you know, I'm, I think I drink too much. They talk about the same thing that experienced funny comedians talk about, but without the jokes. It was kind of like a group therapy session where people would just get up and talk about their problems and they didn't quite have the, the skill to, to make a little turn at the end to make a punchline. So it was just like, uh, it was like a big therapy session. People would see the same faces, you know, day after day. And there was kind of a group of people where they all just got up and talked about their problems on stage. So that's what I wrote about for my first article in the New York times was, um, this, uh, yeah, the open mic circuit in New York and kind of, kind of, you know, uh, it's comedy as failure, what failure is like in New York city. And that's how I started writing about comedy. <laughs> It's it's an it's interesting because I think a lot of people would automatically gravitate toward the uh, successful acts and to <laughs> to revel in the failure aspect of comedy, which is I think ninety percent of comedy. Huh, it is. <laughs> well, the thing is that the, the, there's nothing to write about with successful acts, right? Like, oh, this person is the next up and comer; they're a rising star, and look, they made it! Yay! You know, that's the that's the best kind of comedy to see. But it's not such an interesting story compared to, oh, this person, you know, is 50 years old and has been doing open mics for 15 years and still lives with his mother and is living off his mother's like social security checks, has never had a job and just comes to, and does open mic nights, you know, night after night. That's more interesting. It is. Um, I've always been a fan of comedy. Like I, high school was just a lot of British comedy and and there wasn't a lot of great American stand-up. George Carlin stands out, uh, yeah. Eddie Murphy. But then in my adult years, Mark Maron had his second incarnation. Mm -hmm. Like he went through his recovery and he did a special. He recorded a special that was a small room. I think it was about 30 people. And it was exactly what you're describing. It was a, it was a therapy session <laughs> yeah. that was so vulnerable and so like I was hooked and 
he's a he's a very interesting person to me just so flawed and vulnerable and i feel like that's where comedy has finally gone and it's probably existed in these subcultures for a lot longer but you're starting to see a lot more of this really pained mainstream comedy yeah totally i love that too that's the kind of comedy i like is when it's really personal and honest i think you're right that in the 80s 90s it was much more jokey and much more observational, right? You yeah. have Seinfeld, who he's just making observations about uh, grape nuts. You open the box, no grapes, no nuts. Like, Or like, you know, he would notice, <laughs> or like Halloween candy or things. I mean, he's one of the all-time greats. He's a genius, and his stuff is funny, but he doesn't get into, he doesn't talk about himself much, right? right. He doesn't talk about his feelings. He's, not, he's never vulnerable, right? He's just, uh, he's standing at a remove and, you know, from across the room, he's like, oh, what's that thing? Oh, it's a box of cereal? Uh, oh, those are Pop-Tarts. What's the deal with Pop-Tarts? What? And he starts talking about them, right? That doesn't. That never connected with me. I never thought, oh, I want to do that. Um, to me, right now, my current hero is Louis C.K. because he's so honest. Yes. And he talks about his marriage and his divorce and his fears. And it's still funny. To me, it's funnier because it's more real. Yeah. Um, there was a, what's his name? Redhead guy, Irish, Boston. So, okay. There's a couple of redheaded comedians. So there's Louis C.K. There's also Bill Burr. Yeah. That's who I'm talking Boston. about. Yeah. Okay. Like, uh, I don't agree with a lot of what he says. I like, know he I, has some juice around women for sure. <laughs> yeah. Like I can find him very offensive, but yeah. I don't shy away from offensive comedy if it's honest. Yeah, exactly. And, and he's Bill Burr. He's not afraid to be himself. He's a weird guy who has weird issues with women and he what you know, he watches like, what is it like nine football games a week because he's obsessed <laughs> when he talks about when he does his comedy, he's always compare. He's using like football analogies, which I have never watched an entire football game on TV. I have no idea, but because he's so, you know what it is too. It's not just honesty, but um, it, it's authenticity. And that's yeah. kind of a vague word. But what I mean by that is that he's filtering the world through his own experience He's like, this is how I see the world. Uh, you know, th- this reminds me of a football play. This reminds me of, you know, uh, how annoying my wife is. Or, And it's just, um, he's seeing it from his own perspective. It's like that first person thing. Like, here's how I feel. Here's how I see the world. That's the same thing that I love about Louis's show, the, um, the half hour show. Louis is it's all through his own perspective. It's the opposite of objective, right? It's pure subjectivity like here's my experience and i want to share it and communicate it yeah yeah i i'm a big fan um yeah so you would say that there's a lot of psychology to comedy then right absolutely and that's for sure one of the reasons i'm so drawn to it i i do think that trying to i mean i did uh, when i was at psychology today i i did a couple articles i did one article that was uh, kind of like a round table where i asked various comedians about comedy and about how comedy works. Um, I do think that that can get a little uh, tricky. There's a famous quote by E.B. White, the essayist, where he says, uh, analyzing comedy is like dissecting a frog. Um, Something like uh, uh, you don't get anything out of it and the frog dies. (laughs) (laughs) He phrased it more eloquently, but you can't, you know, <laughs> if you analyze a joke too hard, then you, it loses the magic. Right. So, so, I mean, definitely when I'm listening to comedy, I'm just, you know, I'm not thinking about psychology. I'm just laughing and, and I'm in the moment. Um, but, it, I mean, clearly, comedians, when they write comedy, are thinking about the same things that, as a psychology writer, I think about that psychologists think about which is you know, motivation and perspective and experience and memory and all those things that are so fascinating to me. Well, I think, I think what's fascinating about comedy as an art form as compared to other art forms is that it is only, only valid in your own um, interpretation of it. If yeah. you can't relate to it, it's not funny. Whereas yeah. with many other art forms, you can analyze and appreciate them, even if they don't strike you in a visceral sense you can appreciate them. Comedy is only valid in the eyes of, or the ears technically of the, you know, audience member. Exactly. And that's what I love about it, that, that it focuses 
on on that that personal subjective ex- experience that and and you're sharing that and you're trying to make that like you said relatable to the listener to the audience i think that's to, to me in a way anything that's not that is a little bit distant and irrelevant you know like if uh like i said you know when when jerry seinfeld is talking about breakfast cereal it you know it's interesting in kind of an academic way but what about him what about his own emotions you know my dad is a as a scientist and i'm a science writer but uh he's a physicist my dad and i thought about going into physics but t- to me there's something that's still it's still a little bit separate from from what i feel like life is all about life is all about from my pr- perspective it's all about me and my feelings and other people and i care about other people and and relating to other people and understanding other people and uh, it was about those relationships. If I studied subatomic particles, it would be interesting in this distanced way, but it's not core to life. And that's why I'm interested in psychology and that's why I'm interested in comedy. It sounds like you're interested in shared experience of humanity. Yeah, that's a perfect way to put it. <laughs> On a broad scale. Yeah, I, exactly. I can 100% appreciate that. Yeah. Which then led you to move from writing about comedy to kind of settling into your wheelhouse of science and psychology. Exactly. And you write, you did, you were editor for Psychology Today, weren't you? I was senior editor of Psychology Today for four years, yeah. Yeah. So was it an easy transition then from this kind of um, psychological take on comedy into actually writing more scientific articles? I don't know if writing is ever easy, but I think it it felt natural to me. I realized at a certain point that, as we've been talking about this whole time, that that was kind of my natural default way of seeing the world, of thinking about the psychology of things. Um, So I mentioned the article that I wrote for Rolling Stone about college life at uh, Wellesley College and, and the sexual culture at women's colleges. I didn't think of it as, as psychology at the time. I just had an assignment to cover, you know, what life is like at Wellesley. But I realized in retrospect that all of the questions that I was asking what were psychological questions. You know, what effect does it have on someone to be the only guy on campus? Or, you know, women at Wellesley are getting these empowering messages of, of feminism. You can do anything. You can be, uh, you can do anything a man can do and the old rules don't apply to you. You can, you know, uh, so, so, so does that mean does oh, a female student at Wellesley hear that, and does she feel like okay, that not only means I can be CEO of Citibank or the president of the United States, but also means that the old rules of sexuality don't apply to me, and I can, you know, so, so, so I was thinking about those questions the whole time, and again, like you said, with comedy. So then, when I started going to psychology conferences and reading psychology journals and covering the science and the scientific findings, the sort of new new research in psychology that was being done, it did feel natural to me because sort of those were the questions I was already thinking about all the time and asking in my articles. Yeah. I, well, I would love to <laughs> delve further into the uh, the Wellesley <laughs> stuff. Um, I I'll will, send you the link. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I will, um, I will move into some more uh, workflow related sure. topics. Uh, you mentioned that you have RSI from I writing. I do, yeah. Uh, you know, and I had surgery actually a few months ago. So, as I tweeted at the time, uh, now I can officially claim that I've bled for my craft <laughs> of writing. So, yeah. how long how long did you write for before it became problematic? I mean, I guess I've been writing for you know so long. I've been writing my whole life, probably. But uh, I think it was. Um, I mean, the problem started happening a couple of years ago and I just started having these intense pains in my wrist and I went and got diagnosed. They did these, uh, nerve speed conductance tests and they found compression of the ulnar nerve, which is in the cubital tunnel. You know, you have your carpal tunnel, which is where your thumb is. And then on the other side of your arm, there's a cubital tunnel, uh, and the ulnar nerve, which goes from your pinky all the way up to your elbow. And I have compressed ulnar nerve, ulnar nerve neuropathy in both hands there um, in that in that nerve to the point where in my right hand still I have some clawing. Like if I hold my hand straight 
my pinky and my ring finger start to curl on their own. And if it gets really bad, untreated, it becomes claw hand where you can't even, you literally can't straighten your fingers and, you know, you look like, uh, you know, the hunchback of Notre Dame. But, um, yeah, I had surgery in my, in my left hand, so that's getting a lot better. I may have surgery in my right hand as well. And I've done a lot of things to mitigate that, and, and I really have tried to stop being stupid about ergonomics. So <laughs> I switched to an ergonomic keyboard, and I try to keep my wrists straight, and uh, I don't, I no longer type, uh, you know, half sprawled out on my bed with my hands curled in a weird position. I try to always type at a, a desk. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, it was a couple years ago for me as well. I ended up being in so much pain that I started having, um, I guess, daydreams, long thought exercises about what I was going to do when I couldn't type anymore. <laughs> Professional um, surfer. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I ended up, I did the same thing. I revamped my entire office, got, I yeah. got my ergonomics straightened out. And um, then this year I went to physical therapy. They told me that, because my issue is carpal, yeah. and they told me I could get the surgery where they basically just snip a tendon or exactly. something. That's what they did with me. Yep. And um, it only had like a 50% chance of fixing the particular oh. issues I was having. So instead I went through about six months of physical therapy. Yeah. And I've actually, I don't have feeling in my right hand um, from uh, forefinger through thumb. I, it's difficult for me to hold a guitar pick these days because of that, but you don't have feeling like you have no sensation, Uh very limited sensation. Interesting. Like I can't feel something like a small piece of plastic between my fingers and okay. picking things up can be difficult, but I can type fine. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've relieved the pain that used to shoot through the back of my hand, um, without surgery, but I did try a bunch of ergonomic keyboards and I think you and I both, you've, you've said that you have a lot of keyboard shortcuts. You work in very uh, technical editors like Emacs. Yeah. Um, it's really hard for me to switch keyboards. Muscle memory is really important, and I have all these custom keyboard shortcuts. So it wasn't that the keyboards weren't great for my hands. It was that I got so frustrated with function keys moving around and whatnot Yeah. that I've never been able to really uh, commit to a keyboard other than the one that has the same layout as my MacBook Pro's um, keyboard built in. So it, you did, though. It took me a long time. Yeah. Um, I switched to something called the Advantage Kinesis, which has these concave uh, key wells. So it's almost like there's two bowls for your two hands, and the keys are stuck to the bottom of the bowl kind of thing. Yeah. And so it's, it's super comfortable, but it's weird. And so it took me a long time to get up to speed with that keyboard. And I really had to force myself. And actually, you know, I, um, I bought it, you know what, this is actually really stupid. I bought it when I first started to have symptoms and I tried it and I had the same experience where I was like, oh, I can't get used to this. And then I went back. Um, but, <laughs> but then it got worse and then I had no choice but to switch. So, you know, I should have switched when I, when I first got it, but, um, yeah, I, tr I just tried to use it as much as I could. I, there's advice from people online where they say, try to make it the only keyboard that you use. And then, you know, you'll be so frustrated that you'll just stick with it. <laughs> I couldn't do that. I tried to, to do that. And then I realized that I couldn't send emails to people and I couldn't get my work done because I was so slow and, I found like it, I found that it was interfering with my ability to be creative because I would have ideas and it would take me I would hunt and peck to to type them out. So then I tried to force myself to use it for an hour or two a day. So for my assignments for writing, especially when I was on deadline, I used my MacBook Pro built-in keyboard and then for email or for especially uh texting or chat I forced myself to use the advantage and then I slowly got faster and faster to the point where then at a certain point I could switch entirely. Interesting. I, I have uh, maybe a thousand dollars worth of mechanical and uh, ergonomic keyboards. Yeah. That I it's fun. really would love to make use of. Yeah. I keep, I keep thinking, Oh, that one looks like it could work for me. I got a, um, have you seen the ergo docs? Yeah. I like that one too. I don't have it. I spent weeks 
configuring the perfect ergo dots oh, yeah. and then just couldn't make it my primary <laughs> keyboard. Right, right. Uh, well, yeah. Um, so let's see. You also talked to me about uh, introversion and extroversion. And you are the opposite of me, I think, an extrovert. Yeah. yeah. I'm How- a little bit of a strange type, I think, because when I first meet people, I'm shy. If I go to a party, I am the person who stands by the hors d'oeuvres and just like just eats the food off the table because I'm afraid to go to people and introduce myself. So I have some social anxiety, which made me always think that I was an introvert. But I realized that I'm just an unusual type, which is that I'm a socially anxious extrovert, but I'm a classic extrovert. Like uh, I get energized by being around people. If I'm alone too much, I go crazy. I go stir crazy in my house. And I, I do think that that's something I've struggled with as a writer because writing is so solitary. So definitely I've often felt and, and had to figure out solutions for the fact that if I'm writing, if I'm doing an assignment and I'm alone in a quiet room by myself typing, that just feels like a punishment to me. I'm like, where is everybody? I want to have fun. Like everybody else is out playing and I'm stuck here by myself. So I often think about that. Like, I think maybe I would be farther along in my career as a writer if I were an introvert because I could just focus by myself instead of writing for a bit and then thinking, you know what, I'm going to text my friends. You know what, I'm going to go meet somebody. Do you find that a lot of the people you've worked with seem to be more introverted in the writing industry? I do find that, yeah. I hear, yeah, the people that I know who are, Writers often tell me like, oh, yeah, you know, I could just (laughs) I could just it's just me and my books for days. I could just, you know, I could just write for for weeks at a time or they in fact, they do things like they rent a cabin upstate. Yeah. And, you know, with no Internet and they are just happy. They just, you know, they just uh, do their thing by themselves and they like the solitude. So I've struggled with that. Um, And I. And kind of I. Yeah, I had some ideas. One of them um, has to do with one of my picks. Uh, I don't know if I should fast forward and mention it or whether we should table it. We can come back to it. You can mention it now and we'll go into more detail later. Yeah. So one of the substrates of extroversion is something called sensation seeking or novelty seeking. So there, right. So, so that means the pursuit of experiences and sensation. So, um, extroverts more than introverts have a drive to try to seek out um, sort of uh, sens- sensations like uh, sensory experiences. So, for instance, studies show that extroverts love nightclubs more than introverts do, and they they like porn and horror movies at a higher rate than introverts do because they seek out that sensation. So, I was thinking about that for myself. As an extrovert, how do I how do I make it so that when I'm alone in a room by myself typing because I want to because I want to be doing that because I'm working on something that interests me and that captivates my attention and that I'm excited about writing about how can I make that feel less solitary and even even the quiet gets to me and I I tried music but that doesn't work for me, right? Listening to music seems like an obvious solution, but I just get so distracted by the lyrics that I can't do two things at once. I can't type and have music, even music without even instrumental music, I would find distracting. So I stumbled upon this thing, this idea, which is that I love rainstorms. I find that really exciting. I love to like, if, you know, if there's a thunderstorm, I I love to just throw in my um, Patagonia waterproof jacket and, and run outside and play in the rain. Like I, I just find that so exhilarating. So I started doing this thing while writing, which is I listen to the sounds of, of rainstorms and lightning. And that actually has been working for me where I think, I think it satisfies some need that I have as an extrovert, as a sensation seeker where I can be alone in a room, but instead of feeling lonely and solitary i feel exhilarated like this is exciting there's a storm going on outside and i'm typing furiously and ah the sound of thunder and and it works i really like it see i am very very far on the introvert side of the scale yeah yeah, but rainstorms are my one of my 
favorite things in the world. Like as soon as it rains, I open all the windows. Yeah, same here. And start working. Totally. Um, or, you know, other things that I enjoy during rainstorms. Um, <laughs> but uh, things like working in coffee shops and there are apps for the iPhone that like simulate coffee shop noise. I can't do that. I find that more distracting than just playing classical music or just having silence. Same here. I um, tried working in coffee shops and I mean, it's great. I love it, but I just find that I don't get much work done because I'm so interested in what's going on around me. I'm always looking up uh, at the people, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like, I spend most of my time people watching because I look up when somebody comes, comes in or, Oh, you know, what's that guy working on or, Oh, that girl is pretty or, I just get so distracted and then and then I get hungry and I'm like, oh, I should move to another coffee. I should go to a restaurant and I'll try to type there. And I just wind up um, having a day of doing fun stuff at coffee shops and restaurants, but without getting much work done. My my problem with coffee shops is is uh, not fascination with people around me, but more revulsion. <laughs> you are the opposite of me. My, my brain latches onto the most annoying parts of overheard conversations. Oh, I right. Just, I can't let it go. Right. And then I walk out frustrated. Um, did you see Amtrak's writers program? I did. I applied for that and me they ignored me. Yeah. Cause I, I feel like it's a, it's a perfect blend of like you have people around you, you know, you, you feel part of something, but you can kind of just bury yourself in headphones and the equivalent of getting a cabin, but without the, the absolute seclusion of a cabin. It was intriguing to me. Exactly. Yeah. I, you know what? I could probably even pull up somewhere. I have my application. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I won't, I won't, I, I can't find it, but, 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 I, but I do love that because, because to me that's perfect, right? As a, as an extrovert, as somebody who loves traveling, working in a train is perfect because it's, I mean, I, it's comfortable. I have a desk, I have a, an outlet and I have Wi-Fi. And there are other people around, but they're mostly pretty quiet. And then I have the world's best view outside my window that's changing all the time. It's right. perfect. Sensory fulfillment. Exactly. Yeah. So um, is there, are there any... I think you mentioned leaving the TV on in the email you sent. Do you find uh, television shows less distracting than lyrics in music? No, no. You know, I, try, I tried that. Um and I, I couldn't do that. I just get so <laughs> engrossed in whatever I'm watching that I'm like, oh, you know what? This writing assignment isn't that important. I want to I want to find out what happens, and I get sucked into the story. Um, so I, I can't do it while I'm working. I do like to have I do like to have sound, or you know, it's not even just sound, but it's but it, I like the ideas too. So I I'm someone who like my room right now is horribly messy because, and I think it's really because of the same thing, my extroversion, because you know what happens is, is when I invite somebody over and we're talking, I'm like, Oh, now would be a perfect time for me to clean up my room. And then I do that while they're there. <laughs> and it's because it's fun and it's stimulating to be talking to somebody. And I'm always trying to convince my friends instead of going out to a coffee shop to come here so that I can do things like do the dishes or clean up my room or do my or fold my laundry while they're here. In fact, I don't I don't mind doing things like dishes. If you and I had a you know had a dinner party, um, I you know I would and you were like, hey, I want you to do all the cleanup. I would be fine with that as long as you were standing there talking to me and and. I, I, that's how I, and quote unquote, keeping me company. That's what I think of it. If I have someone to keep me company, then it's great. I don't mind doing manual labor or anything as long as someone's talking to me. Yeah, we do. We have, we have certain crossovers. I have a very messy office, <laughs> but, but for different reasons. And yeah. I can't clean if someone else is in the room. It's very it's distracting to me. I like, I enjoy talking to a person like this yeah. right here is great for me. I enjoy, like, I have a lot of ideas that I want to bounce off people. Totally. I just don't do well with multiple people or anyone for too long a period. Interesting. And is it because you find it exhausting? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I have a, a, with most people, I have a 30-minute cutoff. Interesting. And I've learned that, which makes it easier now that I know, like, in my adult years, why I get so exhausted. Yeah. Um, I can just say, hey, you know, we're done. I'm so the opposite. 
I'm, <laughs> I'm always the last person at the party. Like, you know, Jay, uh, Megan and I really need to go to sleep. Uh, all right, all right, I'll go. Um, I'm, I'm always last in, first out. Yeah, yeah. It's good to know that about yourself. Oh, it is. It makes a huge difference. I used to act out at yeah. parties and get myself in trouble because I didn't understand why things suddenly seemed so different to me after that 30 minute mark. Yeah. That's, um, I wrote an article about relationships for psychology today. And that was one of the pieces of advice I gave to couples is to just understand, you know, if one of you is an extrovert and one of you is an introvert to understand that about each other and accept it and realize neither one is better or worse, but just be okay with it. So, so one of the pieces of advice is leave parties at different times. So, yeah. so instead of like, Oh, Drive we just separately. got here. You really want to leave? Or like, oh, I'm so like, I'm going crazy. Like, I need to get out. Yeah, let's drive separately, leave separately, and be fine with it. That oh, absolutely. You want to stay advice. longer? You should. Yeah, exactly. Yes. yes, because the 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 standard introvert doesn't care if someone else wants to stay. They can go home and have some alone time. Exactly. Yeah. While That's the right. other person, you know, oh. practices their extroversion. One more thing about that uh, is my friend Mia is definitely an introvert. Um, and I had her, she, I, it was such a brilliant little hack, I thought. So she she and I kind of co-hosted a party and I, I definitely wanted her there, but so, but she has the same thing where she just, you know, after an hour or something, she it's too much, maybe it's too, too much sensation or it's something and she needs a break. Um, so she does this thing called introvert breaks. So literally at my party, which was filled with people at my apartment, on St. Mark's place here, um, you know, an hour, an hour and a half in, she was like, I need an introvert break. What should I do? First of all, I thought it was really smart and self-aware of her to, to know to do that. And I said, just go to the bathroom. It's fine. I have this tiny apartment. So she went into the bathroom and just closed the door. And I think just, you know, sat, sat there for 20 minutes on my toilet seat. Maybe she read a book or who knows, or maybe she just sat there with her eyes closed. And then 20 minutes later, she came out refreshed and she was ready to go. Yep. And I was like, that's so smart. I do that. I learned, uh, especially at family gatherings, you know, like you're, you're at your parents' house for Christmas yeah, and it's going to be an all day affair and there are kids <laughs> running <laughs> around and you know that, you know, you, you have six hours to look forward to. And after an hour, you're just done with everything. And I learned that just saying, excuse me, going to the bathroom and locking the door for a little while. Yeah, it, it did. It fixed it. Like as long as I know when to do that, I can yeah. make it through long engagements like that. So what I'm curious about is if you're taking one of those introvert breaks, is there something in particular that you need? I mean, do you need to not be online? Do you need to not be? What would happen if you, you know, let's say went to the bathroom for 20 minutes, but you were texting people or chatting or responding to emails? Would that satisfy your yeah, needs for solitude? Yeah, it still works for or, me because yeah, it's, yeah. it's very intentional and it's focused one thing at a time. Got it. And it's still, it's quiet. I turn the fan on just to like, for the white noise. Totally. And I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll play on my phone. I'll, I have an e-cig that I'll just, you know, idly puff on for a little while until everything just starts to feel... Okay, again, and then I can walk out and yeah, hey, welcome back to the party. It's so interesting. We just have these different baseline states that we're trying to regulate, and I'm trying to get my state up to a level of higher sensation, which I, is why I need to play these thunderstorm sounds in the background. <laughs> and you need, and your state is somehow it's higher than where you want it to be. So you're cooling off and decompressing and letting it go back down. The idea of a deprivation chamber is extremely <laughs> appealing to me. Interesting. I would love to have like the old, uh, what was his name? The LSD guy. Timothy Leary? Yeah. Like he had this whole like tank with the saline solution at perfect right. body Sense temperature. Deprivation. Yeah. Yeah. That, I, I love that idea. Some people, like I talk to extroverts and they immediately like are scared of the idea. They think they would go completely crazy. And for me, it would be a very restorational experience. Yeah. Yeah, but I think you're right, like, for, especially in couples, like, in relationships, understanding those needs in another person is yeah. vital. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I, I mean, it's one of the easiest things you can do is uh, is just leave the room. First of all, that's helpful um, in a fight, right? I think that 90% <laughs> of, of, like, huge blowout fights between couples could be avoided if... When things start to get heated, one of them 
they both agreed that one of them could just say like, you know what, I need, I need 10 minutes and leave the room. Then people cool off and they remember that they love each other and they, you know, the, the sense of defensiveness, literally your body is in that state of physiological arousal, right? That fight or flight, you cool off and then you can, you know, come back in the room and resume. I think that's such a, a helpful trick. Um, I've started to try to remember to do that. <laughs> my, and yeah, my wife taught me that. I, yeah. I have so, always like, been the guy who wanted to, we got to talk this out right now. Yeah, that was me too. Like, oh, we can't go to bed angry. Right. Uh, we have to fix this now. And it was always, it always made things worse. Yeah. And so if, if you, I didn't let her walk out of the room, she would just shut down. Exactly. You know, she would just stop talking. And I learned that if I just let myself stew and let her do whatever she needs to do in another room, you know, when we come back together, things are so much easier. Yeah. So allowing your, you know, whoever needs the space, allowing them to have that space for, you know, for however long they need, 20 minutes during a fight or, you know, oh, I need the day to myself today because we spent the whole week together. I need alone time. Great. That's fine. I doesn't, I don't take it personally. Not like, oh, you, why you don't want to, don't you love me? I but, used to but, take it personally. Yeah. <laughs> so paranoid about that. What's she thinking exactly. all day? Yeah. But if you understand that it's because of these sort of inbuilt personality traits, then you no longer take it personally. Yeah. That was a big step for me Yeah, in my uh, emotional maturity. Same here. So last topic before we, uh, before we switch to our uh, top three picks. Yeah. You, you, you mentioned something called delayed sleep phase syndrome. Yeah. What is that? Um, it's technically it's a sleep disorder, but to uh, the uninitiated, it just seems like being lazy because um, what it means is, is it means you stay up really late and you sleep in really late. And I have that. Um, and I, and I, that's what I did for years where I would always find myself, especially as a freelancer. Um, you know, when I was on staff at psychology today, I was able to get to work on time and everything, but, um, but absent that external structure and, um, accountability and, you know, fear of getting fired if I don't show up at work by nine o'clock. Um, without that, what happens is I always just default to sleeping until noon and staying up till four or 5 a.m. And um, for a while, I thought that was fine. I thought, oh, I'm just I'm just a creative person. That's when I do my best work is at night, which was true. But it caused so many problems for me. One, I was just out of sync with everybody else. <laughs> um which itself caused problems because uh, it was it really it caused problems for my productivity, right? So I wake up at noon and then I get up and I and I do work. That's fine, but I'm such an extrovert that I, if I work during the day and I don't see my friends in the evening, then I go crazy. Like I can't. Like that's not living to me. I I need to socialize. So let's say I wake up at five, uh, wake up at at, at noon. I have breakfast, whatever. I start working at 2 PM. I work till six, seven. And then I hang out with my friends because that's when people are going out to dinner, doing stuff. That's when, you know, if there's a play reading or if there's a lecture or whatever, all the fun things there are to do in New York, that's when that was happening is in the evening. So then I would go and do that at that time. And then when I would get home at night, I would, you know, I'd probably do some, some, some writing, some work, but then, Eventually, I'd be like, okay, like, I want to relax. It's the end of the day. I want to unwind. But then I would have this time between, you know, midnight and 1 a.m. all the way till 4 or 5 a.m. when I finally felt tired. Um, when I was like, okay, I, I don't want to work anymore today. And I would just waste that time online, right? I would just sure. um, surf the web for hours. And so I wasn't getting as much work done as I wanted to. So clearly the solution was to fix my sleep schedule. But I tried so many times to do that. And I tried so hard with just sheer discipline and will, and it never worked because, you know, as, as much as I forced myself to get up at 8am and go to sleep at midnight, it would work for a few days. But then on a weekend, I would just, it was was like I had some, uh, some kind of bender, except that instead of drinking, it'd just be like, Oh, it's so it's, Friday night. Now I can stay up as late as I want. And then I would wind up staying up till six or 7 a.m. and then sleeping in again. And I was like, oh, now I'm off schedule again. And that kept on happening so many times and I couldn't fix it. So, um, so 
and, and this is going to lead me into one of my picks. Um, so I, 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 and I, I wasn't able to fix it until I went to a sleep doctor and he prescribed something to me, which is, I guess, my first pick. Should I go into it? Let's, um, I'm going to do a quick sponsor break and then, Great. yeah, we'll, we'll lead that. this into, uh, the top three picks. Okay. All right. So this episode of systematic has been brought to you by PDF pen eight from smile. PDF pen is the ultimate tool for editing PDFs. People have been working toward paperless for a long time, paperless office, paperless life. Uh, but there've always been things that you just have to have paper for and PDF pen eight solves almost all of them. You can add text and graphics. You can make corrections, redact sensitive information, number your pages, anything you need. Then you can uh, break the scan, print, sign, fax cycle as well and do it all in paperless style. The new PDF Pen 8 enriches your PDF creation and editing experience. You can even make audio notes that you record in place or access file attachments. You can sign documents with digital signatures and then you can send and receive PDFs with a great degree of trust. Uh, better than anything previous. You can export to Microsoft Word without the need for internet access or any conversion systems. Uh, you can learn more about PDF Pen at smilesoftware.com slash systematic. So go check that out. And thanks to Smile for sponsoring us. Uh, so yeah, that brings us to the top three picks. So I will let you continue with your first one then. So here I am. I can't get my sleep schedule on track, right? No matter what, what, no matter how much I try, I always wind up. There's one night where I just stay up super late and then I just sleep in late. And really, I realized that that's what my body naturally wanted to do, that no matter how much I tried to force it, my body was defaulting to this wake up at noon, stay up till 5 a.m. thing. So I went to see a sleep doctor and he said, yeah, that's a thing. You have something called delayed sleep phase syndrome where your circadian clock is out of whack and your body wants to wake up late and stay up late. I said, okay, so what do I do? So he prescribed something to me and I couldn't believe how well it worked. Um, it's a blue light machine. Uh, and what that means is uh, it's made by Philips, the Philips blue light machine. And so it's this little box and you press a button and it shines blue light at your eyes. So, um, the way it works is that's the, that's the part of the spectrum of sunlight that stimulates the production of wakefulness hormones in your body. So same reason that, uh, in the winter people get seasonal affective disorder is uh, a lack of exposure to that, to the, the blue rays of sunshine. So it affects mood as well. But for me, the, the effect that it had was I would wake up and first thing I would turn on this blue light machine and just let it shine on my eyes for 10 minutes, these blue light rays. And you don't have to be staring at it the whole time. Like you can be checking email or um, journaling or whatever, as long as the, the light is shining on your face. And it, it, and what it does is it resets your circadian clock. So if I wake up at 8 a.m., let's say I force myself to wake up at 8 a.m., no matter how tired I am, I force myself... I look at the blue light machine for 10 minutes in the morning at 8 a.m., then I will feel tired at midnight and I will want to go to sleep like clockwork and it works every time. And so now I have this new routine where I wake up and I look at the blue light machine and it just it, it, it works. It resets my circadian clock. My body now knows that that's the time to wake up. And then uh, and then, yeah, I naturally feel sleepy uh, at a reasonable hour at night. The complement to that is I also use Flux or Flux yeah. on my Mac, which um, filters out the blue light at night. And I have that on my iPhone as well. Uh, I think it's called Night Shift Mode. Yeah. And I try to do that around the house as well. I just bought these amber bulbs, five bucks. Um, and they're just, um, you know, they just look like orange, yellowish light bulbs. They don't have the blue spectrum. And so... It allows my body. So the way it works is that at night, if you if you're exposed to those blue rays, then your body will not produce melatonin. It inhibits the production of melatonin, which is what makes you sleepy. So if you get rid of all the blue rays at night, then your body will start to produce melatonin and you'll feel sleepy. And it works for me every time. Night shift on iOS has made a big difference for me because yeah. uh, like the default settings of any mobile phone tend to 
put a lot of blue light into you, into your uh, eyes. And, uh, and then I always had trouble falling asleep if I checked email right before bed or anything. Yeah. To your uh, body, it's like as if sunshine was shining on your face. Right. So it keeps you up. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't, I've, tr- I've done a lot with filtering blue light. I haven't done a lot with adding blue light. I do get SAD in the winter and I use a full spectrum light to kind of stabilize things. Great. But, uh, in the bedroom, I, <laughs> we, we mounted birch branches in the corner. Yeah. Like uh, overhanging the bed. So it's like you're in a forest and then strung amber Christmas lights. Oh, wow. That's awesome. That and around the room. So when we go to bed at night, it is there's very yellow light in the room and uh, a very soft yellow light. And that has helped a lot as well. But there's also uh, Zeiss makes some like uh, glass lenses. Yeah, that filter blue light for like if you want to read on your iPad in bed at night. I haven't tried them. Yeah, so so in other words, you have an orange filter on your glasses, something like that. I, from what I've seen, they don't appear to be anything but clear. Oh wow! But it's supposed to filter out blue light. Interesting. But I don't wear my glasses much, so right. I should, but I'm really bad about um, optical hygiene. <laughs> I wear the yeah. same contacts for like 30 days straight and just oh my gosh. them in the morning. <laughs> and my doctor always says, hey, it's working for you. You have a strong resistance to bacterial infection. So, yeah, I guess <laughs> as long as you're not having symptoms and you're fine. Probably not the best thing to do, <laughs> but it's working for me. Has been yeah. since I was a teenager. Yeah. Anyway. All right. So my first pick then, uh, all my picks this week are iOS apps. Um, just kind of happened that way. Uh, first one's called charm and it lets you do you, you, you do a lot on Twitter, right? I'm not as active on Twitter as I should be. Okay. Fair enough. Um, well I do. And Twitter constantly frustrates me with my inability to tag curate tweets, bookmark tweets. Um, basically you have favorites and then you have Twitter's collections, which are not accessible in most of the apps. Um, charm gives me, uh, a way when I'm in something like Tweetbot on my phone, I can then send a tweet to charm and it will pop up a share sheet and I can just tap a collection to add the tweet to. So I can have like a read later collection and a favorite jokes collection, etc., and bookmark individual tweets without having to create lists or anything. And I've been greatly appreciating. I've gone back through the last like two months of my stream and started filtering out all the things that I had favorited, but they weren't necessarily favorites. They were things that I just wanted to be able to find again later and start organizing them. So that's been a great app for me. Awesome. Yeah. And then you can share your collections too. So you can like build a Storify kind of sequence and then share that in various formats. Oh, neat. I'm going to check that out. All right. So what are you using as your second pick? I'm going to talk about, uh, I mentioned the the sound of rain and thunder. So there's a website, just very simple. It's the most dead simple website ever, rainymood.com. And so uh, I'll just you know put on some headphones and, and go to rainymood.com, and it just plays a, the sound of a thunderstorm. Um yeah, it's perfect. Does it vary uh, much? Or is it just the same track every time? Yeah, it's like a 15-minute track and then it repeats. Um, but it's it has a nice rhythm to it. It has kind of like a, uh, you know, it starts off kind of soft and then the rain grows in intensity. It gets heavier and heavier and then there's thunder. So I like it. It's, um, it also helps me mark the passage of time, too. Like, I'm like, oh, okay. Um, it, just, it just started over again. So it helps me keep track. You use Pomodoro technique too, right? I do, yeah. Um, that's part of my whole system now. I, I, fe- I feel like I kind of tried everything and nothing worked until I found the perfect system. And so now I have, I have this daily system where I wake up, I look at the blue light, I do morning pages while I'm having coffee, and then I go to my writing space and I do eight Pomodoro technique uh, eight Pomodori, um, in, in the morning. Yeah. With a, uh, yeah, I do, I do four, then a 30 minute break, then another four. And that's my, and that's my writing for the day. That's my, my writing routine. That sounds like, a, a an intelligent, 
kind of uh, structure for a freelance writer. I think a lot of people get bogged down with trying to find that perfect schedule that works for them. And I did. I tried everything. And, and this is really the first and only thing that's ever worked for me. All right. So my second pick is a new camera app called Pro Camera. And there have been I, my folder of camera apps on my phone is intensely um, deep. There are way too many. But this one has excellent HDR like really fast HDR with immediate ability to edit the multiple exposures, has a great night mode, uh, low light mode, and uh, has good editing tools and you know a, a minimum of filters, but I'm kind of over filters at this point in my life. Um, and it can function in a light box mode where it doesn't save every photo to your camera roll. You can just pick, you know, so you can just shoot continuously and then pick the best shots. Oh, nice. Or it can work just like the standard camera and every shot you take goes to your camera roll. And I, I've just overall, it's been a good collection of the most important features to me. And with a watch app with very uh, camera controls, much like the default camera app. I want to try that because... When I take photos, I take so many photos because I just learned from experience that the more photos I take, the better chance there's going to be one that's really good. Yeah. So if I'm, no matter what I'm photographing, I'll take 20 shots of the same thing. And then my camera roll is filled with these duplicates. And so it's impossible to find anything. So I like that idea of just being able to save only the one that I choose. Yeah. And if I, like my camera roll, it syncs to iCloud, it syncs to Flickr, and it syncs to Dropbox. So if I do a burst of like 50 shots on one subject, I get huge piles of photos everywhere, which is Same here. painful. Yeah. All right. Nice, yeah. So go for number three. So my number three pick is kind of funny. It's, uh, it's a pair of pants. It's a pair of pants, and it's... Um, they're Lululemon pants, which I know most people think of as a brand of yoga pants for women, which... Of transparent yoga pants for women. Transparent, yeah. It's a feature, not a bug, um, from my point of view. Um, no, I'm just kidding. That's ridiculous. From the back um, of the yoga class. <laughs> yeah, they got in trouble for that. But Yeah, um, they did. <laughs> yeah. CEO apologized or even maybe stepped down. I'm not sure. Um, so... So they make pants for men as well. In fact, they're going to start having men's stores because they're trying to branch out into the men's market. Um, and I would never normally feel tempted to try Lululemon pants, but I just I, I read some reviews online that said that they were the most comfortable pants people had ever worn. And now that I have them and I'm wearing them right now, I kind of agree. Um, they look like khakis. They look like regular chino pants. Um, but they have four-way stretch, which means that they stretch lengthwise and crosswise. Basically, they feel exactly like uh, gym pants, but they don't look like gym pants. They look like you know dress pants or or uh, casual business casual pants, and they're also moisture wicking, sweat wicking. So I don't feel sweaty in them. They're very cool, and I love them. How old are you? <laughs> I'm forty. Okay, so you remember Chuck Norris's like kicking pants? Um, the really baggy ones? No, they were they were normal looking like Levi jeans style. Okay, but the entire crotch area was like a cotton spandex kind of thing. Okay, and you, so you could do like karate kicks. Yeah, in tighter yeah. jeans. <laughs> That's all I'm thinking about right now. Yeah, it's the same idea. I don't <laughs> try not to kick people. That much, but uh, what I use it for is I um, ride city bikes all around New York, and so now instead of just feeling that resistance of like, oh, like I could ride home from where I am, but uh, my jeans are kind of tight and I don't want to mess up my. Now I'm just like, I can jump on a bike and it feels great. There's no, <laughs> if I don't take a bike, then it's then I have no excuse. So I've been biking a lot more. It's great. I used to ride four miles to work. Wearing um, uh, Italian pant slacks, yeah, and like Gucci shoes. Oh wow! And it was yeah, it it was <laughs> often very inconvenient. 
a yeah. more comfortable pair of pants would have, well, that's true of the, my whole life at that point, <laughs> a more comfortable pair of pants might help, but I do feel like it, it changes just the way I feel walking down the street. I just feel, you know what it feels like? It just feels like my legs are stronger. And I guess it's because they're not hitting the resistance of tight yeah. jeans. So I just feel like a, it's like a kick in my step. And I just feel like, oh, I'm, I guess I'm in a good mood because I'm just like walking with a lot of uh, s- speed. And, and I, I feel like I have extra energy. And it's such a good feeling. Even better than walking and biking naked. <laughs> yeah. Which can also be very inconvenient. Biking naked, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so my last pick is uh, an iPhone app called Ennotable, like the word annotate mixed with the word notable. And it is, do you, did you ever use Skitch? I did, Which yeah. Which is now like an Evernote product. Yeah, um, yeah. It was awesome for just taking quick screen caps and adding an arrow or a box or exactly. you know blurring out text. And that's exactly what Ennotable is on the iPhone. Take any photo or screenshot and, you know, just draw quick annotations on it and send it wherever it needs to go. And it is, it can do like um, obfuscation. You can like blur out just a small section in an email or something if you want to hide an address. Nice. Uh, draw an arrow, draw a box, full selection of color palette. And that's what it does. And I have found it. I've been looking for something that simple for quite a while. And that one's awesome. Perfect. I'm going to try it. All right. Well, that brings us to the end then. This was such a pleasure. Such a fun conversation. It has been great having you on. Uh, you can be found on Twitter at jdixit. Yes. And you have a website at jdixit.com. Is yes. There anywhere else you want to mention? Yeah. my um, I also teach writing classes and storytelling oh, classes. Oh, man. We left that whole part out. Oh, I guess we did. I should be a better self-promoter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's talk about that for a sec. Okay, sure. We, we you know, we're already over time. So, um, <laughs> what's the okay? So it's in New York. Yeah. What is it called? It's called the New York Writers Intensive, and it's um, my little company. It's just me, um, but I teach classes on writing and storytelling, um, and uh, yeah, I I feel like I feel like as a writer. You know, I know so many writers who kind of were naturals and they were always good at writing. I feel like I learned the hard way, the same way that I had to figure out just through sheer trial and error how to get my sleep schedule on track and that the Pomodoro technique was the only way I could get work done. And um, I feel that that happened for me, too, with writing, where you know, for so long, I think I wrote really grammatically correct sentences, no typing errors or spelling errors anywhere. But they were really boring, and everything I wrote was pretty boring. And it wasn't until later, several years into my writing career, that I realized that I was focusing on the wrong thing. I was focusing on making my sentences really pretty and using interesting words. And I thought that was what writing was all about. And I didn't understand that really it's the story. It's telling a good story that captivates people, that keeps them on the edge of their seat, that makes them want to turn pages or makes them want to keep on listening. That's what makes writing good is having a good story. And I feel like I learned that the hard way through trial and error. And so I teach classes on how to use storytelling principles in your writing. And it's called the New York Writers Intensive. It's at newyorkwritersintensive.com. All right. Yeah, that's um, that sounds very appropriate for anyone getting into writing. I think a lot of people hit that. Uh, they get corrected a few times or they go through an editor and realize how bad their writing style is. And they focus intensely on that. Yeah. And not, not the fact that most editors will shorten your sentences, which, yeah. which is the real, uh, the real benefit there, not the uh, grammatical structure as much as picking up the pace, telling yeah. a story, trimming the fat. Yeah. That I've gotten about Twitter has made me really good at that. Oh, yeah, that's good discipline. <laughs> I think it is. I think everyone should have to take a paragraph and try to express it in 140 characters. I agree. For me, the way that I got better at that was through telling stories of the moth. The moth is a storytelling series. People get up on stage I and tell love a f- the moth. 
Me too. I love it so much. It's five. You have five minutes. Five to well, you have five minutes with one minute grace. So six minutes is your hard limit for telling a true story about something that happened to you. Everything has to happen in those six minutes. For me, that was the best discipline as a writer to learn really what the crucial elements of storytelling were and to just boil it down to the bare essentials. Yeah, I think my favorite moths have been Izzy from Guns N' Roses. Oh, wow. DMC from Run DMC. Oh, I got to check those out. (laughs) They were great. Partly because I like like have a long history of liking both of those people. Yeah. But partly because they're fascinating storytellers. So totally. Yeah. Okay. So New York writers intensive.com. Yep. And uh, yeah. So I'm TT Scoff everywhere. You can find me at brettterpstra.com. And thanks everyone for listening to Systematic. Thanks for being here, Jay. Thank you so much. And we'll see everybody in a couple weeks. Bye.